Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History. Podcast. Hello, hello, and welcome to hello, this hello, week's hello, podcast. Hello, hello, I'm hello. here with the lovely Peter Hart, and I am Gary Bain, the rather ordinary Gary Bain. And we're here enjoying a lovely cup of coffee. My cup of coffee has been bought for me by lovely Warren. Oh, mine's bought by Nick Guest. I love him with a passionate love. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't say we're on surname. We'll, we'll just call him Wazza, and then he'll know. He'll know. Who know. <laughs> a lot of other people have bought us coffees, and we'd like to say thank you. You don't have to do it. if You just do it if you really enjoy an episode. And don't buy us loads, just buy us one. <laughs> I'm having cream in my coffee. Yes, well, <laughs> he, he was more generous than Nick in that way. Now, today we're going to be continuing our story of the 2nd Royal Norfolk Regiment. Fine body of men. Uh, as we've uh, mentioned in previous podcasts, the, the battalion was uh, uh, destroyed at the massacre of Le Paradis, and we, we use that word rightly in this case. It was murderous. Um, and, uh, and they've reformed back in England, uh, but now they're being posted overseas. And so they're, they're at, we find them boarding a former tramp steamer, SS Orbiter, uh, in Glasgow, which set sail on the 15th of April, 1942. Now, everyone suffered from the cramped conditions on board. And to give an example of that, you're going to be Sergeant Walter Gilding of the Malta Platoon HQ Company. Now, we're going to do... The whole whole thing is going to be about their time in India. But uh, uh, this time, they don't know where they're going, do they? It's quite exciting. I was trying to not give away where they were going. Oh, I've blundered again, haven't I? Yeah. So you're going to be Sergeant Walter Gilding. I am. When we arrived on the orbiter, we wondered where everyone was going because I think the passenger capacity was about 600. And here we were with getting on or two upwards of uh, 3,000 on the boat. My personal accommodation was with, was with three other sergeants in a one-berth cabin. They put another bunk over the top of the single bed and the other two laid on the floor head to, do, uh, head to toe. So four of them in all, yeah. We had one wash basin and that had a crack halfway down. So when they turned the water on, which was once a day, we had just enough water for half a basin. If it was, if it was full up, you lost half it through the crack anyway. The four of us had to wash and shave in this. Then we took it in turns to wash socks or pants or whatever out. That was our accommodation. And then key, the lads 
they fared even worse. Oh, I, and you bet they did. Now, the, the, the men, they're cramped together in mess decks where they slept in hammocks on the mess tables and on the floor. And they were fully aware of their impossible situation in the event that they would were torpedoed. Now, um, you're going to be one of our favourites, Private Dick Fidderment, are you? What's Dick got to say? They had these watertight doors, which in the event of being torpedoed, they were closed to shut that part off. But they didn't close. You couldn't move them. They were rusted up. Yet you had to have somebody stand there. That was the way the army worked. You couldn't close the bloody door, but you had to have somebody stand there. I bet he never complained, though. Not, well, it doesn't sound like it, does he? So they're, they're festering down below the waterline. Festering is probably a good word for what they were doing. Uh, and a few of them couldn't help but think, uh, what about those U-boaty things? And, uh, and, and some of them would be worried, and other... Other bastards would uh, see it as a bit of an opportunity for a bit of a laugh and a joke, wouldn't they? And you're again going to be Dick Fiddleman. I lay on the floor for a time and you could hear the boom, boom, boom of the propeller. The light would go out at, say, 10 at night. Then you would get some wag say, listen. Then they'd get an ammunition boot and they'd whack the bulkhead. Clang! Bloody torpedo. Imagine giving them a... That would give you a bit of a shot. Clang! Great stuff. Now, the boat drill practices, they didn't go well at all. So some of the men adopted uh, a rather fatalistic approach. And you're going to be Lance Sergeant William Robinson of A Company. We, we did have boat drill, but the position we were in the boat, it would have been impossible for anyone to have got out had there been anything happen. Had there been a hit, we were so far down that it's all right in practice saying you hang on to the one in front, but you can't do it. I would have thought that it would have been far easier, easier to have saluted said, rule Britannia, and gone down with it. Because she would never have got up. It would have been a funny. I like the idea. <laughs> rule Britannia and gone down with the ship. Ah, excellent. Now, they're, they're passing through the Bay of Biscay. What's the Bay of Biscay famous for, Gary? What's it famous for? Biscays. Not Biscays, no. <laughs> have another think. Dredging up from your memory. No idea. Rough weather. Oh, and uh, you're going to be Private Stan Roffey of the Carrier Platoon Headquarter Company. The boat was actually reeling out of the water, hitting the water as it bounced back, really frightening. The chap who was detailed to get the porridge for our breakfast put it in the tray, a huge tray, rather deep and full up with porridge. In the process of coming down to the deck, the boat did one terrific move and he fell. All the porridge went down onto the stairs, plus the water coming in from the sea and the toilets being blocked up. It was really a mess. Of course, we all had a laugh, but the chap carrying the porridge wasn't so lucky. He got covered. Excellent. Now, I wonder what he was covered in, whether it was just the porridge. I hope so. Uh, now, uh, even, even if the mess orderlies managed to get down there, uh, they're intact. That that one, <laughs> some of the cooks must have been people of the sort of personality that you sometimes demonstrate, Gary. One, some 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 people who would want to make a, a joke out of everything. Well, to... in, in some cases, cruel jokes, and uh, you're going to be Sergeant Walter Gilding again. The mess orderlies came down with a main meal, and it was tripe, boiled tripe. I was supervising the dishing up of this tripe. The men were waiting. Never has a word been better used. The men were waiting for their plates to be sent down to them. One of the mess orderlies started to dish it up, and he was sick in amongst the tripe. 
That was the finish for me. I just had to leave them to it. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. oh dear! Now I, I would imagine that you know, with the with the sickness, uh, inappropriate diet, uh, the toilet arrangements were pretty important. Or the heads, to use that nautical language, which I could tell was just about to leap from your lips. Yes, and I'm going to be Private Dick Fiddleman again. There's a row of wooden seats, and they are flushed by seawater. You sit there. There's no embarrassment in the army because every one of you has seen whatever there is to see. You sit there and all of a sudden you'd get a swell. I'll bet you did. (laughs) The ship will go up and down, port to starboard, and all this water is slopping about and you'd get a wet backside. It, it's quite. An, this is a standard arrangement this time. It's just basically uh, the uh, the toilets are, are are above an open gully that just water runs from one end to the other. And you're going to be now. Uh, there was a, a wonderful practical. Joke. Now I've heard this practical joke told to me by about forty people. It was standard joke in the navy and in the army. And you're going to. Uh, it 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 brings a, a hot flush to uh, to the cheeks, doesn't it? Uh, this uh, particular practical joke. And you're going to be. Private Stan Roffey of the Carrier Platoon. What, 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 what was this joke, Gary? The toilets were above a steel gully that was set up at an angle so that they were continually being flushed by seawater. You just sat and did your business. For a joke, somebody would set a piece of newspaper, put it at the top end, set light to it, and let it float down where somebody was sitting on the toilet. So you had to be careful. I could just imagine flaming newspaper going down towards your arse. All unbeknowing. <laughs> Great stuff. Now, as they move into more settled climate, uh, their stomachs settled, the, the men begin to take more interest in their surroundings. Many of them sought to escape from the fetid atmosphere below decks by sleeping on the deck. Well, it's a shame that, uh, that we haven't got uh, Fred with us to, uh, to give us a sort of living example of a fetid... <laughs> no, but we'll put a picture up. Of Fred? Yes. <laughs> yeah, no. Now, the sheer lack of space restricted opportunities for effective training, but Major Robert Scott improvised as best he could, and you're going to be Second Lieutenant Sam Horner of HQ Company. Robert Scott used to have battle practice, chucking the old wooden boxes over the side, and then he had people with Bren guns to shoot them as though they were on the range. Various NCOs walking about with tent pegs, bashing them on the head to, to simulate battle conditions. Robert Scott was a great man on this. His philosophy was, Our infantry soldiers, no bloody good if he can't shoot straight because somebody will shoot him first. He plugged this like mad and he was absolutely right. I was hoping you might have forgotten your accent for Robert Scott. Never! Now, after a stop at Freetown, where no one was allowed ashore, so a bit of a misnomer there. That is true. The convoy steamed on to Cape Town. And I'm going to be Sergeant Fred Hazel of D Company. What a disappointment for Fred is coming up. <laughs> the first day we stayed in Cape Town. Everybody had been asked if they wanted to go on a trip round the town. Ladies would be pleased to show them around. That didn't appeal to me. I imagined some little grey-haired old lady taking me by the hand and taking me round. So I didn't put my name down. In fact, I don't think any of the sergeants did. But when we disembarked, there was this whole line of great big open cars, all driven by young girls of 17 and 18. There was a lot of gnashing of teeth, as you can well imagine. Now, they had a short stay ashore at Cape Town at retreat camp. 
rather appropriate name for them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and on 19th of May, 1942, they leave uh, on, on their shippy thing again. And by now, they are, it is revealed to them where they're going. Although, <laughs> they should have been able to work it out. Uh, they're going to India. Sorry about that earlier. Ruining of the suspense, Gary. And you're going to be Sergeant Fred Hazel again. All the old soldiers that had spent a fair time in India were telling us all that we could expect. They made it sound very attractive. They told us that after 10 o'clock in the morning, you did nothing. Just kept under cover, laying on your beds on the verandas. Then maybe you'd do a little bit more from 4.30 onwards. But most of the day was spent at siesta, which appealed to everybody, as you can well imagine. Now, I, I was wondering, when we retired, we were told it was going to be like that. <laughs> it's not like that, is it, Gary? It's a constant trial and work and slaving about household tasks and writing podcasts, podcasts and... Books and... Podcasts. More podcasts. Anyway, uh, the Norfolk's land at Bombay on the 10th of April and uh, move off uh, immediately by train to Chinchwad Camp. Uh, it's a bit of a desolate spot. And uh, how do you think the men found the, uh, the climate in India? Was it to their liking? Well, no, they find it oppressive in the extreme and I'm once more going to be Private Dick Fidiment. He never complained. There were a few parades and I can recall standing to attention in our ranks being inspected. Everyone thought, my God, how long will this last? I don't know what the temperature was there, certainly 110, 120 degrees. I do know that we were drinking plenty of liquid and as you drank it, you could watch it burst through the pores of your skin. We were literally saturated. You felt just like a limp rag. I don't think we would have been in a fit condition to attack or ward off a five-year-old child because we weren't acclimatised. Now, another problem is the monsoon, which uh, bursts, uh, as you know, at a certain time of the year, which I, of course, don't know when it is, but it must have been about then, because uh, just after they arrive, they get hit by it. And I'm going to be Sergeant Ben McRae again, aren't I? Carry a platoon. And what do I say? I'll say this. Every night you got thunder and lightning, no rain. Lightning right across the sky it used to light the place up. We expected rain and they said, dig trenches all the way round the tents. We dug little things, one foot, 18 inches. We thought that would be ample. What is a British soldier like with digging? Don't Gary? like digging. That night, that night, high wind first, then the rain came down. These little fart-ass trenches, they were useless. It just came down in sh solid sheets of water. The ground got soaked, the pegs pulled out, down came the tents. Everything we had was absolutely soaked. We just stood there. There was nothing we could do about it. There was a sort of fatalistic attitude. Oh, well, it can't get any worse. You just couldn't get any wetter unless you dived in a pool. <laughs> Now, one golden rule of pre-war Indian military life was abandoned in the face of the threat posed by the Japanese, who were looming large on the Burmese frontier of India. And uh, the 2nd Division were determined to train for war. And you're going to be Provost Sergeant Bert Fitt of HQ Company, 2nd Battalion. A great character. British troops did not march in the heat of the day. But as far as the regiment was concerned, they realised that if you were fighting out east, then you may have to fight through the heat of the day and do long marches. So most of the training consisted of route marches, starting off about 8 to 10 miles and then building up to a matter of about 25 miles in a day, all in the heat of the day. Very, very hard going. Obviously, you had to restrict people drinking water on the line of march. You had to be on the lookout for that. 
Sorry, I was just imagining him. <laughs> you were only permitted to have a sip of water if authority was given from the person in charge of the march. Although it was hard going, they did it, and the regiment had something to be proud of. They were the first troops to do it. I think most of Second Division were doing it, actually. Uh, well, a lot of the old India hands, uh, though, were... They, uh, what do you think they thought? Well, they, they were more amazed than impressed. And because I'm working you so hard today, you're once again going to read the quote and you're going to be Second Lieutenant Morris Francis. He's a lovely bloke. We went, we went on a route march into Pune one day and we got there after midday. The people were looking at us and saying, what the hell are these chaps doing out in the midday sun? It was hot. Mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the midday sun. Doody, doody, doody. Now... One problem of acclimatisation to Indian Conditioner Service, uh, we've come across this before at Gallipoli, was dysentery. Well, Bain's disease is its better known. And Private Stan Rofi of the uh, Carrier Platoon says this. I was standing on guard on the ammunition tent and I was right in front of the Regimental Sergeant Major's tent. All of a sudden I heard a scuffle. I was looking in front and he was trying to put his trousers on quick. I thought, hello. He's got the dysentery. He's going to run. He came out of the tent, half holding his trousers up and running like hell to go to the latrines. And he didn't make it. He used one of the litter bins for all his mess. Of course, I made sure he didn't see me laughing because I would have been well in it. I just, you can just imagine the, the RSM. Well, would you have loved to have seen that in your time in the army? I'd have never have mentioned it. <laughs> Gary, I sometimes wonder if you tell fibs. Now, again, in India, one of the other problems that afflicts every, almost everybody was prickly heat. Oh, that's terrible. They all moan about that, don't they? And uh, I'm going to be Private Dick Fidament. Somebody with a hairy chest would get this prickly heat and it would send you on the verge of bloody insanity. You shouldn't scratch, but you did scratch, and it would bleed. Then it would become infected and all sore. You get it on your head, get it round your private parts, any part of your body. Uh, terrible, terrible. Now, um, on the other extreme of life, on the 8th of July, 42, uh, a party of 100 of the uh, Royal Norfolk Regiment were inspected by Duke of Gloucester. Is that Richard Duke of Gloucester? Anyway, it's a Puna. Um, now, I remember well when he inspected that the South Knots disaster, and he farted over the head of one of the lads as he was trying to get up a tank. But uh, what happens this time? Well, the, the preparations are absolutely ludicrous. Uh, and uh, how much does the uh, average soldier love the royal family when they have to be put through this kind of thing? Well, I'm going to be Sergeant Fred Hazel of D Company, and he says this. It was a hand-picked squad. We were taken there, and then we were actually lifted into our shorts. We had very stiffly starched shirts with beautiful creases. Somebody held them open whilst two others got you under the elbows and put you in like that. Then you buttoned them up. We were picked up by the elbows, carried onto the parade ground and put down in position. Now that takes a bit of whacking, doesn't it? While we were standing there, somebody came along and gave a little final dust around our toe caps. The Duke of Gloucester whistled down the lines. I don't think he noticed us. I love it. 10th of July, the battalion moved to, oh, Karak, Karak um, where they, they carry out a variety of combined operations exercises. And then five days later, they move to Ahmednagar. And this is going to be their home base for the rest of their stay in India. Um, where were the men housed? Were they in, were they in barracks? I don't think so. 
No, most of them were housed in bashers, which were, were sort of huts constructed from mud and wattle, which is a word you don't hear very often nowadays. Uh, and I'm going to be Sergeant Fred Hazel again. You like him, don't you? We had a long hut which accommodated a company, and at the end there was a separate room for the three sergeants. There was a series of these huts, and one was divided into five for the five company officers. Then you had stores, the jail, the messes. The buildings were built of single brick up to about three foot. Above that would be this sort of raffia work on a timber frame. A tiled roof and mud floors trawled smooth. It dried hard and it was surprising that it didn't dust an awful lot when you think it, it was just ground you were on. Now the bed uh, were, were called charpoys and I'm going to be Second Lieutenant Sam Horner of HQ Company. He says this, a charpoy is a wooden framed string bed and everybody, all ranks, had charpoys. You first of all had to boil them, <laughs> if they hadn't been used for some time, to kill all the bed bugs. Then you stood them in four tobacco tins to stop more bed bugs and other God knows what climbing up. Now, that's funny because I remember that detail from people who were in the, the, the Kassir El Nil barracks in Egypt. And they say, same thing, um, uh, t tobacco tins, uh, I think they put oil or something in, paraffin in them. Uh, and the same thing, things don't change. It's amazing the, 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 the similarities because that's 50 years before. Now, there were some of the traditional advantages of serving India. Uh, the men had a large range of Indian servants offering their specialist services, of which perhaps the most useful were the uh, Doby Waller. And you're going to be Private Stan Banks of the Signal Section HQ Company. The Doby Waller was an, an Indian who came around once a week and collected all your shirts and what have you, crikey, uh, to take and be laundered. Everything was ma marked with Indian ink. You had your own sign, dots and dashes. How they worked it out, I don't know. But I never knew of anyone who got the wrong kit. They used to take this away and wash them, bashing the clothes against stones. Then they lay them out to dry in the sun and bleach them. They had one of these great big irons with charcoal to iron it all over. And it would come back wonderful. So it saves you having to do your own clothes, doesn't it? Yeah. Now, they'd hardly settled in at uh, Ahmed Nagar when they were sent to the Bombay area for more combined operations training, which in the event was cancelled because of serious civil disturbances. This is, now, this is this would be the time that the Congress of India passed... Uh, it's, it's famous, although not to me and you, Gary, is it? But it, I, I looked it up, and it is famous to other people. They passed a Quit India motion, basically telling the British to bugger off. Um and, and this triggered a, a load of large-scale demonstrations uh, uh, in a lot of the big towns in India. And, in, you know, uh, the, what do the Norfolks do? Well, they embark on a series of mar marches uh, to show the flag. This is a very British thing. Uh, show the flag. Show, And actually, it's not as friendly as it sounds. Basically, you're showing a male fist. You're not actually using it, but you're showing it. And you're going to be your favourite, Sergeant Fred Hazel uh, of D Company. We sent out platoons or companies marching round the town in what they called flag marches. We were preceded by four members from the Bombay police dressed in their natty little uniform. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Forms. They had one in the gutter and one in the gutter on the other side of the road, each with a long stick, about seven foot long. Any Indian that got anywhere near us got a clout on the head with the stick. The other two had short canes and were swiping them. We marched through the town with fixed bayonets and carrying our rifles at the port, looking all very ferocious. They had the impression that we all had one up the spout, but in fact, we hadn't got any ammunition at all. Good heavens, if you'd have fired around at an Indian there, would have been a tremendous Ferrari. I suppose we look pretty fearsome to the natives. Well, it's not just looking. They are, they are, but anyone nearby is being bashed with a bloody great stick as well. It's not that friendly, to be honest, is it? No. And on the 10th of August, the battalion was sent to the industrial cotton manufacturing city of Ahmedabad. And on their arrival at the railway station, they're met by a huge demonstration. Well, you're again going to be... What, what does Fred Hazel say about this? It was a very big town with a hell of a lot of cotton mills, the sort of town that Hollywood would depict in the films of India. You had this main road over a mile long, dead straight, and all the buildings on either side. There were alleyways at the roadside, which would have uh, would have very ornate wrought iron gates. We came out of the station and formed up as a battalion by companies. The entire road, as far as you could see, was jammed solid with Indians. Jammed solid. Thousands and thousands of them. And they were all up on the rooftops saying, infidel, infidel. It's quite a delicate situation, isn't it? Because um, it's a peaceful demonstration, but it's not a friendly demonstration. There's always the potentiality for, uh, for trouble, isn't there? If somebody does something wrong on either side, it can go off. Yeah, there's always the potential for trouble. <sighs> now, I'm going to be Private Dick Fidderment. He's trouble all on his own. <laughs> they were young students, younger population, and they all wore white linen, a baggy kind of trousers, smock-type white linen jacket. Some were embroidered, some weren't. They had these little white side caps that stood on the top of their head. Among the crowd, there were stretchers made out of bamboo, and on the stretcher was a corpse, covered completely over with flowers garlanded all over it. We were told that they and the Indian police had been in a riot and one or two of them had been killed. They were displaying these bodies and chanting. The only comparison was to see a football crowd cramming in, a solid mass of people. They're shouting things in Hindustani, Urdu or whatever, and you know that if there was the slightest chance, they'd crush you like a beetle. You could see the hate in their faces, the abuse, the spitting, and that makes you feel awful because it's not our nature to be like that. We're not bullies. We weren't Germans. We weren't Nazis. Hmm. 
Yeah, um, uh, we're we're not as innocent as that in in, in India. Uh, uh, but but these are what this is what the lads think. That's the thing about oral history. As from from their perspective, that's how they saw what was happening. Now, I notice. I mean, I used to think the battalion were fortunate in having the second command, Major Robert Scott, who'd served in the Palestine police. But more mature reflections made me realise that this perhaps wasn't a good thing, as the Palestine police had a dreadful reputation uh, for causing trouble as much as they solved it. Um, however, he, he did try and sort this out with a minimum of force. Um, um, but... I think, knowing Robert Scott, he'd probably prefer to use as much force as possible. But uh, anyway, he doesn't, does he? And again, you're going to be Fred Hazel. Captain Fulton was standing in front of the company with his little cane, and Bob Scott came down, looked at this crowd and said, Fulton, get rid of these people. Isn't he Cornish anymore? Not when he shouts. <laughs> Captain Fulton ran at them with his little cane, and I've never seen anything like it in my life. There were tens of thousands of them there, and they turned and they fled. They knocked over peanut barrows, sweetmeat barrows. People were knocking themselves out on lampposts. It was amazing. Now, I think they must have been just terrified because they don't know. The thing is, the British have... It's not all about one officer running at them. It's if they, if they resist, they, they, they can open fire. And it wasn't so long ago that this sort of thing had happened, uh, that, that the British had opened fire on these occasions. Anyway, the next step was they went, they moved to Congress House. That was where the Congress party, the local Congress party w- uh, would meet. And I'm going to be Lieutenant Sam Horner, who's a signal officer of HQ company. He said, the next day, Robert decided to deal with the situation, so he had the MT people, that's motor transport, uh, take the silencers off the three Bren gun carriers, pack them with men without arms, with lartes, that, that's big pickaxe uh, elves and things, and drove them into the town. Well, they made a noise like a tank without their silencers. They went straight to Congress headquarters, into which he sent all the troops, threw anybody down the stairs who got in the way, Threw out all the papers, all the bump, lit a fire outside, burnt all their records, everything. Then he sent a, a company to occupy it and a couple of the buildings. That was that. Hmm. Mm. Now, for the junior officers, this period was extremely stressful uh, as they sought to impose order without using any force. Or I think that's probably not true. Minimal force, shall we say. And knowing that they would be held directly responsible if anything went wrong. And you're going to be Second Lieutenant Dickie Davis of D Company. And he's, he, he shows you why some... This quote shows you why some of the, the Indians would have been nervous of the British Army. You knew you would be court-martialed before you started. And everyone had heard the story of General Dyer and Amritsar. You had a, a writer who wrote down whatever you said and put this notes up. Stop! or I fire. A civilian magistrate mumbles away, and you hope that they stop. I was lucky, because they always did. The worst thing was going in through the streets, because they'd empty rubbish over you. Excreta, wrapped up in a piece of newspaper, was a good bomb. It wasn't very pleasant. We got an infection which raised terrible sores, great purple sores. Blimey. Um, Nevertheless, nevertheless, whatever you think of the methods employed, they don't open fire. Uh, they, they do, I think some people got hurt, but uh, it does, the situation, they avoid a real flashpoint, don't they? Yeah, and, and everything sort of calms down and order's restored by the beginning of September uh, when they're relieved of their duties and return to Ahmednagar. Now, they even got a send-off from Indian civilians on leaving, and I'm going to be Sergeant Fred Hazel. What you got to say? 
We marched down the whole length of the town to the station and practically the whole population turned out and cheered us. In the local newspaper, there was an article which gave a very good account of us, saying we were a fine, disciplined regiment. What started off looking like a pretty tricky operation ended up very friendly. Now, I wonder if they were just pleased to see him leave. <laughs> very possibly. <laughs> yeah, anyway. Now, next year, there's a whole... They're, they're in India sometime. They spend a lot of time uh, on specialised training, combined operations, jungle warfare. Uh, they, uh, they were based at Ahmednagar, as we said, but they move, they move about, don't they? Uh, honing their skills. What kind of things are they doing? What kind of things, Gary? Well, they're doing things like river crossings using toggle ropes and boats, uh, extensive I'd treks. I'd rather use a boat than toggle ropes. Yeah, extensive treks through rough country, uh, cooperation exercises with armoured formations and full-scale assault craft landings, all endlessly practised. Jungle training was given special emphasis with the battalion moving to the uh, Belgaume area. They did that for a long time there, jungle training. Yeah, here the men are put through uh, a, a reaction-firing assault course whereby they'd creep through a jungle area as if in action, and all around them were pop-up targets. And uh, who's going to be the next one? I'm going to be Private Stan Roffey of the Carrier Platoon. They were operated by virtue of somebody behind pulling a string or wire, and up would shoot a target. No sooner was it up than it was down again. Several targets would come up. You were all in a group. You'd be walking along waiting for the next target to come up. Perhaps the chap next to you, he'll hit the target. Winkle Fit was behind you, and if you missed, he'd fire a revolver past your ear. Not at you, but the noise would make you jump. They were looked at afterwards to see how many shots were on target. You'd be going on and on, and then you'd get a place... Uh, get to a place where you had to go up a hell of a hill. You got to run up there, pretend the Japs were up there, and you'd got to charge. Run up there and charge. You were literally out of breath. It must have been. I mean, you've got to remember the, the climate they're in. By the way, there's a, I had a misfit, uh, a misprint there. You were completely right. You're, it's winky fit. That's my fault. It says winkle. Uh, winky fit. Uh, uh, I don't know why, because he... <laughs> I don't know why he was called Winky, but he was. I like Winkle. Yeah, you would. You like a little Winkle, don't you? Um, now, uh, July 1942, um, Colonel George Winter. Now, we talked about him a bit before. He was the guy who really looked after him. He gives up the command of the battalion. He got malaria. And who takes over? Well, Robert Scott's promoted to replace him. Lieutenant now Colonel Robert Scott, then. Winter's... Uh, <laughs> eccentricities had become a little more marked in India and you know there's some argument that perhaps that was because of the heat and you're going to be Captain John Howard of the intelligence officer HQ company now George Winter there was at his worst he used to go round the camp picking up little pieces of paper and if he found a cigarette cart he would put his initials on it J-H-G-H-W and the date and time then he'd come creeping along a week or two afterwards to see if it was still there silly old sod but despite this, during his time in command, a new battalion had been forged from uh, from the wreck that he'd taken over when he arrived at Driffield. George Winter was a hard-working, conscientious officer whose eccentricities merely overshadowed and underlined military competence, which many of his officers they appreciated. Well, yeah, and and I'm going to be Lieutenant Dickie Davis of D Company, and and he does appreciate the work Winter did. Um, he says this, Winter was a brilliant administrator, but found it difficult to liaise with people. He trained the battalion to a first-class standard. He and Robert couldn't have gone to war together because George dithered and Robert didn't. 
They were both sound soldiers, but that was the way they worked. George would want everything, uh, everybody's stockings tied up the same way before he attacked. They couldn't, they couldn't have done it together. They would each have done it quite competently, uh, though in their own way. Everything George did was with the right intentions, and it worked. Robert inherited a perfectly trained machine. Without George, Robert wouldn't have succeeded. He's, so he's basically, I think, basically saying that Robert was for action, uh, Winter was perhaps for, for training, uh, to simplify what he's just said a bit. Uh, now, the elevation of Robert Scoff, it has an immediate impact on the, uh, the battalion's officers. And once more, you're going to be Second Lieutenant Maurice Francis. The battalion came to life. Here was a person we could, in a, in a way, identify with. He made us interested in what we were doing. He somehow tolerated bad behaviour and was able to distinguish between pranks and real wrongdoing. Well, from what we've heard, there was plenty of wrongdoing from Scott himself, but there you go. Uh, training, that's always competitive in the British Army, but he raises it to a new height, doesn't he? Um, he's trying to perfect the battalion. Winter's handed over a good unit. He's trying to perfect it. And uh, I'm going to be Sergeant Walter Gilding. You're just working me so yeah. hard. I'll just sit back here sipping my coffee. Oh, God. <laughs> he pitted one person against... This is Sergeant Walter Gilding. He pitted one person against another, or in my case, one detachment of mortars against another. Going into action, if it took three minutes to mount a mortar, then another detachment would try and beat it. That was the competitive spirit. The same thing with the riflemen firing rapid. So many in such and such a time to put man against man. All sorts of individual efforts. Then then it went to sections. A section would go through the jungle to a certain spot in a certain way and time. They would compete against other sections. So it was with sections, platoons and companies working in that competitive way. Now, does that sound original or new to you from your perspective as a uh, no. it, it's the British Army it's, way, isn't it? Competition way, yeah. at every level. Now, Scott, he, he's he's totally obsessed with improving the overall standard of marksmanship, and he introduced a new comp uh, competition, ribaldly known as the uh, swinging tit. And you're going to be Sergeant Ben McRae of the Carrier Platoon. He had a shell, solid anti-tank shot, swinging on the end of a wire about 200 yards away. You had to hit that. You had to time the swing and get it. I could get it four out of five. That sounds difficult to me. That sounds difficult to me as well. And and the changeover in Colonel, it, it means that the battalion's got some new ideas in, in every department. And because I'm working you so hard, you're going to once more be Captain John Howard, the intelligence officer. I am. And before we go on, I, I want to see you try this, uh, the, the invention of Robert Scott in this next thing. I think it's you you. You know, you've you've been boring and dull enough in your choice of drink. You've got to you've got to be more adventurous. This is what he, uh, Howard says. If you could have got it, we would have drunk beer, but we didn't get it very much. The Indian gin and whiskey were pretty frightful. The gin we thought least lethal was called Carews. We drank it as a long drink, not neat. There was a famous invention of Robert Scott: gin and onion. <laughs> That was typical of Robert. We hadn't got any bitters to put with the gin, so Robert said, We'll try onions. Oh, arr, ha, ha, I forgot. Ha, ha, we'll try onions. Always used to use onions with gin in Palestine. So all the simpletons used to drink gin and onion. Not at all bad. You, you should try it one day. Yes, you should, Gary. I thought you meant the beer. I was going to try the beer. Now, gin and onions. 
You have boring old... Is it lemon? Oh, God, Gin and tonic. Gin and tonic. Oh, yeah, that's right. But now, you often have lemon or lime in it. I do. Now, moving on, the battalion had a new issue of uh, Lee Enfield rifles during this period, which uh, all had to be zero. That's hard work for the armourer. But they also had several Sten guns, a cheap submachine gun, which was mass-produced, reputedly at a cost of only 10 shillings each. Many of the men harboured reservations about the reliability of this weapon. And by this time, Bert Fit, he's been made a platoon sergeant with B Company. So he's not a proper sergeant anymore, is he? And he says this. If you bang the butt of a Sten gun, you can almost guarantee that what would happen is the bolt, or the bolt head which holds the firing pin, if you banged it, it was so cheaply made and the spring was so weak that it would come back so far, go forward again and fire the round. So really speaking, there was always the element of risk of somebody getting killed. And do you know what? Uh, uh, the Sten gun, Descendant, the Sterling, and I think yeah, the submachine yeah. SMG. If you I dropped think, it. If you dropped it. It wasn't as bad as the Sten, no. but it's an endemic risk with a submachine gun, isn't it? Yeah. Now, by the start of January, the battalion had been together for three and a half years of solid training. And in that time, it had forged a new identity. Although named the Second Norfolk's, it had mutated into a hybrid of regular, territorial and conscripts, as indeed happened to so many of the battalions in the city. Well, they don't keep their identity. And, of course, especially if they're smashed up. And the British Army, why were they... We've talked about this before. Why do the British not send all people from the same place to a battalion? Because they'd learnt from the experiences of the Powers oh. Battalions in the Great War. So, exactly right. So, th there was a mishmash of troops. Um, if only I'd known the weather in the Bay of Biscay. I'd yeah, have had 100%. You'd, you'd have had a 100% record, but, uh, yeah, the Bay of Biscay. It's now, so by this time, they're ready for action. I'm which, still thinking of the Bay of Biscay. I which was be. perhaps just as well, as during 1943, the Japanese had been building up their strength in Burma. It was becoming obvious that at some point in 1944, they would launch an assault on the jewel in the British Imperial Crown. Birmingham. India. Oh, <laughs> I presumed it was Birmingham. <laughs> now, although the overall British policy was defensive, Admiral Lord Louis Mountbatten, oh, we've heard, we've heard of him, as the Supreme Allied Commander in the Southeast Asia Command, was keen not to adopt too uh, supine a posture. You are posh at times. You didn't want to lie down. No, you put in words every now and again that you think I'm not going to be able to pronounce, don't you, in the notes. The 2nd Division had therefore trained in combined operations with a view to striking back at the Japanese wherever possible. Now, they had several things in order, which we're not going to go into, because they didn't ha happen. First one, they thought about an assault on the Andaman Islands. Then they thought of an attack on the Mayu uh, Peninsula. But both times they're thwarted. Now, why are they thwarted? What else is going on in uh, late 43, early 44? What else is going on? Sicily. But more important than that, what's happening? Well... They would have needed specialist landing assault craft. Now, where do you think they might have been useful? They're required for D-Day, aren't they? In Europe. Yeah. Now, Mountbatten, he begins a tour of the 2nd Division to meet as many of the men as possible to explain what's happening. And he reached the Norfolks on the 21st of January 1944. And you're going to be Lieutenant Sam Horner, the signals officer. Now, I, this, this, I do like this quote because it, it, it again shows up some of the ludicrous nature of uh, army life. Uh, anyway, so Horner says this. Mad Baden decided to visit us knowing how sad everybody was <laughs> who would be at missing this expedition. Uh, nobody actually told him that a lot of the chaps had said, that's good. 
<laughs> Didn't like the sound of that very much. <laughs> he wanted to speak to the troops. And he, he was a very difficult chap to manage because he would not have the troops paraded to speak to. All he wanted was a soapbox. You had to have a soapbox for him to stand on. And then they clustered round him and he addressed them. It was much more difficult to arrange something like that than having just an ordinary proper parade. The RSM was not supposed to rehearse the battalion, but nevertheless, he thought he'd better. <laughs> the soapbox was found and put out ready. Then the battalion was hidden behind all the huts. <laughs> the RSM said, Here, you mustn't march, but you got to get in that, uh, that, that box. So when I said, Sora! You saunter! The battalion then had to practice sauntering out. <laughs> Wrong voice. <laughs> and getting round these soapbox. It was very funny watching it. I muddled my accents a bit there, didn't I? <laughs> yes, I've got, I've got this view now of the command saunter. Saunter! Wait for it! I just love that whole concept. Anyway, um, Ma now Mountbatten he's got an, an informal approach. Wow, it's phony as hell. It, yeah, and and but it did strike a chord with many of the men. Well, uh, that's why he did it because he's not stupid, is well actually. Well, they were uh, used to sure. generals <laughs> and uh, minor royalty inspecting them with their noses in the air. And uh, to close, you're going to once more be Sergeant Walter Gilding. Mountbatten just gave us a talk saying that we would reap the benefits of all this training and possibly it wouldn't be long before we were called upon to carry out the job that we were intended to do. I think everybody got, had got to a pitch where it was like a boxer. You train up to a certain pitch and then if it doesn't come off, you sort of slump back with disappointment. I think everybody was raring to go and, and, and to have it knocked on the head was a little bit of a disappointment. More than a little bit. Well... I wonder if they're going to go into action soon in early 1944. Mm. I don't know, do you? No, I don't know what the weather's like in the Bay of Biscay. No, you don't. <laughs> now, uh, that was a good one, Pete. Thanks for your time. Thanks for your time. But I'm going to get back to me coffee. I like this idea of you doing all the quotes, though, and me just sitting back. I just thought I'd mention that. Yes. I feel quite relaxed and refreshed this morning. Cheers, Gary. Cheers, Pete. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee 
at buymeacoffee forward slash pgmh or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?